This is The Morning Show with Greg Berg, the podcast for July 20th, 2019, the 50th anniversary of man first landing on the moon with Apollo 11. For today's podcast, we have two interviews that will help commemorate this exciting milestone in human history. First, you'll hear my conversation with Craig Nelson, the author of a book called Rocket Men, the epic story of the first men on the moon. This book was actually published 10 years ago to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11. It was at that time that I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Nelson about his endlessly fascinating book. Um, it seems to me that uh, it's intriguing when a writer or a documentarian is looking back over this kind of span of time. Uh, over the course of 40 years, certain principal players are already gone, but many are, are still around. And of course, it also feels like history, but not so distant history that there isn't a lot to dig into. Just give us a quick word about just the, the riches that were at your disposal to tell this story in, in such remarkable detail. Well, what happened was when I started out, I tried the standard journalism of tracking down the astronauts and their wives and kids and the ground controllers and all those significant people in this story, and almost all of them were completely burned out. They'd been interviewed so many times, or they'd worked on memoirs, or they'd, they'd been in magazine articles, that, and they really didn't want to talk about it anymore at all. And so I um, was trying to figure out what I should do next, and I realized that all of them, in fact, had been interviewed hundreds of thousands of times already, and, and there was very little that I could add to that in that respect. So I started really working through the archival record. And uh, I had two fantastic things happen where uh, uh, NASA had its oral history program pretty much completed, where they interviewed a vast number of people who had worked not only directly for NASA, but also subcontractors. And it was everyone from a guy out on Long Island who worked on the moon lander to the father of the ICBM, a guy by the name of Sam Ramo. So it was just an incredible array of material. And at the same time, the CIA released its documents about Corona, the photographic satellite that uh, spied on Moscow and uh, the Kazakhstan Cosmodome, for where the space program in Russia was being held, all this during this period. So I had both of those things to dive into, and the results are really, I was so happy to find them. Hmm. One of the things I enjoyed about your book is that we learn so much about NASA and the people who work there, besides just the astronauts, but of course, everybody who was there, who may ultimately made all of this work. At one point you said NASA is a factory of miracles because it is a nation state of brilliant tinkerers who outside their field are often derided as nerds. <laughs> but I mean, of course, within the walls of NASA we're talking about uh, really heroes and I suppose a few heroines. Tell us just a bit about NASA and uh, how this uh, amazing organization accomplished what they did. Well, it was fascinating because when, during the Eisenhower administration, when people were trying to cast around to figure out how they would respond, not only to Sput the Sputniks, but to the public humiliation that happened with the U-2 and things like that, um, Eisenhower was very cherry of giving a lot of space exploration over to the military. And there was this little agency that worked between uh, the government and business to try and keep American aerospace competitive with the rest of the world, and it was called the NACA. 
and they sort of put in their bid as they should run it, and he gave them everything else that became NASA. And so right from the start, there was this very sort of plucky group of guys who uh, were really the first people to work in high-altitude flight, and they worked with the X-15 program. They worked with the X-1 that broke the sound uh, barrier. And so you had these people already doing this sort of state-of-the-art things, and one of the things that I think is so interesting is that uh, we have this image of the astronauts from uh, Tom Wolfe and the right stuff of being these wild cowboy-type guys. But the real cowboy-type guys were the engineers, because they were always pushing the envelope and always trying to do one more thing. And a lot of the stuff they do, this is almost what the first third of the book is about, you know, when you read what the status of things were at that time, you think, we're not ready to go to the moon. And what do they do? They go to the moon. Hmm. (laughs) And I think it's Buzz Aldrin who actually says at one point that, that test pilots, and most of the astronauts had been test pilots in their previous life, uh, are not those kind of top gun showboat kind of of people, a test pilot because they are testing typically new sorts of vehicles, uh, are really almost engineers of of their own and have to be extremely disciplined creatures. Yes, well, uh, uh, Tom Wolfe had become very enamored of the fact that the majority of the Mercury astronauts came out of the Navy and they'd been fighter pilots and a lot of them had trained together at Pax River in Maryland and things like that. So he sort of promoted this thing. By the time of Apollo, to become an astronaut, you had to have an advanced degree in science and engineering. And this really came home to me when I learned what Aldrin and Armstrong took with them on their mission to the moon, which were slide rules. They each brought their own slide rule. One of the things that uh, we hear about the the whole space program and its its history, particularly in a book called How the Pyramids Were Built, is how for some of the most important uh, persons as part of the development of rocketry in this country, that for many of them, for several of them in particular, Jules Verne from the Earth to the Moon was uh, an amazing inspiration. And that when we read this work, it's incredible how well he sort of seems to predict what's ultimately going to happen and what it's going to feel like. It's uncanny because the writing is very much of its time. It's, it's very purple prose. It doesn't hold up all that well. But all three fathers of rocketry, an American, a Russian, and a Romanian, all read from the Earth to the Moon, and they all chased their lives. And then he actually predicts that the... He, he actually didn't predict Apollo 11. He predicted the a predecessor, which is Apollo 8. He predicted that it would take off from Tampa, Florida, which is not that far away from uh, Kennedy. And, uh, only he had his rocket shooting out of a cannon, and they didn't use a cannon. But that they would circumnavigate the moon, which Apollo 8 did, and then splash down in the Pacific. So it's quite disturbing mm-hmm. how close he was. We're speaking with Craig Nelson. We're talking about his remarkable book called Rocket Men, the epic story of the first men on the moon. And as we've already touched on, this book is about more than that and does such a fine job of, of uh, laying the historical context for what ultimately was accomplished with Apollo 11 in 1969. Uh, as the, the struggle to land men on the moon uh, intensifies later in the decade, one of the things you point out to us is those l- those Apollo missions are really stacked on top of one another so tightly that it actually created a fairly serious problem when it came to uh, Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins actually being able to really train themselves for their mission with some time to spare. 
Tell us why this was a, a rather crucial complication. Well, it turns out that it's very difficult to create spaceships on a planet where you have gravity in an atmosphere and you're trying to make spaceships that work in a uh, vacuum without any atmosphere uh, and no gravity. So uh, they, they, what they did was they created these simulators to train everyone, both the ground control and the astronauts participated in these simulators, but they were stacking up these flights so intensely that the simulators would be too busy for the Apollo 11 guys to use because the 10 people were still on them. And, uh, and, and to the extent that really uh, they, there was sort of an allusion to it by one of the wives, but I, I'm pretty sure she was, she's a very straightforward woman, Jan Armstrong, so I'm pretty sure she was being honest. The, the astronauts did not feel ready to go when Apollo 11 lifted off. They, um, they thought their chance of making it was 50-50, and they uh, were so frightened by the sort of global response that would happen if they succeeded in landing on the moon that they sat on the launch pad in 30 minutes of complete silence, and Mike Collins developed nervous ticks in his eyelids that finally went away after the rocket cleared the tower. One of the most sobering indications you give us in the book of just how very real a possibility it was that this mission was not going to be completed successfully is the fact that then-President Nixon uh, had had written for him a speech prepared just in the event that things went tragically, terribly wrong with Apollo 11. Can you that's tell us more about that? That's how serious they looked at it. And also, uh, I, uh, I have... I have word from a NASA executive that Nixon didn't want to attend the liftoff because he was afraid if it was a failure, it would look badly on his administration, so he sent the vice president instead. Hmm. One thing I, I meant to mention, uh, and I had not known this till I read your book, is that when um, Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins are selected for Apollo 11, at that point in time, it is by no means certain or even all that clear uh, or even likely that it's going to be Apollo 11 that is the mission that first lands men on the moon. And I would have thought that, uh, in fact, that would have been uh, planned out with such certainty that they would have known at that moment for certain that that's where all of this was leading. It sounds from your book like they, in fact, were not all that certain at the start of all this, that that was ultimately a responsibility that would fall on them. Well, I actually have mixed feelings about that part of NASA history. I'm, I'm giving in the book the material that's provided by NASA executives and by the astronauts for how they explain how this process happened. And it's true that they were stacking up these missions so much that they never knew what was going to happen. So, you know, you were, you, you were training for a mission so long ahead of time that you never knew what was going to happen between now and then. It could have dramatic leaps forward, in which case you could be preempted, or it could have dramatic failures, in which case you would be the um, dress rehearsal and then the next guy would be the one to actually touch down. So on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, they... They, all of the NASA executives seem to go out of their way that they didn't deliberately pick Armstrong to do this, and I'm quite sure they did. So I actually have 50-50 feelings about it. Hmm. And, of course, you tell us also that, in fact, the decision of who would uh, set foot on the moon first 
was a bit of a point of contention. And, exactly. Uh, and it sounds like a matter not handled particularly well by NASA. No, I think, well, you know, so a lot of engineer-type guys sort of live in their own heads. And I don't know how many people at NASA even realized what it was like to deal with someone from a newspaper <laughs> until 3,000 of them showed up for Alan Shepard. So I'm not really quite sure. I, I think that's a lot of what had to do with the early days. But um, uh, it, uh, that's the other side of the story where you get conflicting reports, where on the one hand you have people specifically saying that um, Buzz Aldrin was going to be first because NASA followed the Navy tradition of not having the commander step out into unknown territory first. You then had another person saying they did not want Buzz Aldrin first because he was sort of obnoxiously self-promoting and they wanted a Charles Lindbergh type like Armstrong. And then you have another person saying, well, actually, the door of the lunar lander was going to be next to Armstrong. It would be impossible for Aldrin to get out first. So that's how the decision was made. Hmm. So you have those. And then you have the fourth opinion, which is that Armstrong decided it as a command decision. So you have those four different opinions of how this was done. Interesting. You mentioned uh, Charles Lindbergh. I found very striking uh, a quote uh, in the book where Neil Armstrong, in a sense, distances himself from uh, from Lindbergh. I think I just found it. He said, I guess there's some thrill to being first to do something, and most of our guys in the program so far have been the first at something, just because there's so few of us and so much to be done for the first time. Of course, the first to land on the moon, why, that's a considerably bigger thing. But I would probably have to agree with those who said that in this feat, who the person is is sort of happenstance. It's not the same sort of thing as when Lindbergh crossed the ocean. That was all based on his own ideas and his own techniques and his own accomplishments. That's not the sort of thing this is. Right. Well, it took 400,000 Americans uh, working for NASA and its multiple co uh, corporate subcontractors to get to the moon. And so I think they did a wonderful job. Uh, uh, not only he, but also Collins did a very wonderful job pointing this out over and over again in various speeches they made during the mission and afterward. Uh, however, it seems to me there are so many elements of Armstrong that would make NASA want him to be first. It's a little hard to imagine. Not only did he have this sort of all-American boy-next-door looks and name, but he also had a disastrous Gemini mission, and he got both himself and his crewmen home alive, which is a very crucial thing when you're a pilot. So I, I, I think there is a little more of a nudge than they admit. Uh, I guess maybe it's because I'm a member of the media, I suppose, that I especially found interesting and entertaining and a little troubling, too, uh, some of what is in your book about the press coverage of Apollo 11, and I suppose some of this applies to other missions as well. But really, uh, what an excruciating ordeal to a large extent this was. I mean, for these astronauts and others with NASA to be asked one inane question after another. I mean, with members of the press who seem to have so little grasp of, of what this was really all about. I mean, and maybe to some extent, understandably so, but, but nevertheless, uh, I'm, I'm a little uh, bewildered. <laughs> no, it's shocking. It, it really shows you the kind of press that was happening 40 years ago. When you go back and look at these press conferences, and the, and the ones I put in the book are word for word verbatim what they said. Hmm. And in particular, you say that uh, these press conferences embodied NASA's fundamental PR conundrum, having to talk 
but hating to talk. Yes, exactly. You know, every single president at NASA, you have these, these test pilots who come out of the military. You've got military people who come out of the missile program, the ICBM program. You've got engineers and you've got scientists. None of these people are, are really have an interest in being mediagenic. None of them want to be interviewed. None of them want to go on TV. You know, there's almost a, a collective uh, uh, disinterest in trying to explain what they do to a general audience. And then when they found out that they had to do this, I don't know that anyone was really ready for it. Right. As, as much training, they gave the astronauts media training, they gave the head of mission control media training, they did all this stuff, but I don't know how many of them were ready for it. And, and in particular, I think it's Michael Collins who says so much of the time they seem to be interested in how does this feel? What are you feeling about this? And, and so many of the, of the people who are being asked questions like that, that's the last thing they felt like talking about. Right. Um, you take us back 40 years so thrillingly uh, to, first of all, just the incredible drama, I mean, the attention of the whole world and of how moving an experience it was just to see that liftoff. You... Uh, you uh, quote Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001 A Space Odyssey, saying, At liftoff, I cried for the first time in 20 years and prayed for the first time in 40. And, of course, the, the, the mission itself, you take us through it in, in very sort of blow-by-blow fashion. Uh, some of we will already know, and many of the interesting details we will not have learned until we read your book. One thing I especially appreciate is how beautifully you describe the moon itself. Yeah, and what I, a I fell in love with the moon writing this book. Absolutely. This is one thing you say. Uh, I c- actually, you're quoting somebody from NASA saying, uh, it is hard to wrap your mind around a place where nothing ever happens, but the moon is that place. And then, in your words, for all of human history, the lunar surface has remained the same. And this condition reminds us of how alive the Earth really is in the weather of its atmosphere, the tides of its seas, the seasons of its tilting axes, and the geology of its volcanoes, tectonic plates, and erosion. I mean, and there the moon sits, perfectly still, perfectly unchanging over the centuries. I mean, that in itself is an astonishing thing to try to imagine. It is. It's just fantastic. And the whole way that the moon was born, which we didn't know about until Apollo 11 or until the Apollo missions, is so incredible to me because this whole idea that the Earth was this giant molten thing like a big piece of lava and then something the size of Mars crashed into it and all of the the sort of uh, debris from this collision uh, got captured by Earth's gravity and formed into a ring and then turned into the moon. So the moon was made out of the Earth. I just can't put my head around that either, and we know that from the Apollo era. Hmm. You tell us that really the whole world was watching, including the Pope, arranging for a special color, color television set to be rolled into the Vatican, even though Italian TV was broadcast only in black and white. But I mean, the eyes of the world riveted on these events. Uh, in, in the couple of minutes that remain to us, uh, tell us how close Apollo 11 came to being a failure, and I'm thinking particularly of that heart-stoppingly dramatic turn of events when they suffer a computer malfunction just as the module is descending to the lunar surface. I mean, how close did this come to being disaster? Well, really, if you look at it moment by moment, something could have gone wrong at any second, but but there are two moments that were really terrifying. The first one was uh, during the landing itself. The computer was supposed to control the landing and set it down, set the craft down exactly where NASA had planned. 
But what happened was that when the two ships separated from each other, there was a tiny bit of air left in the pressurization, and that little air was like a cork popping off a champagne bottle. And just that little tiny push threw off the landing by four miles. And Armstrong looks out the window and sees where the computer is going to land and realizes that there's no possible way they can land there. So he takes over manual control of the ship, and like all good NASA employees, he doesn't say anything to anybody back in mission control. (laughs) (laughs) And they're watching him run out of gas while he's not landing. Uh, So there's this incredible hair raise. The landing itself is unbelievably hair raising. The computer goes wacky because they have two different kinds of radar, one to reunite back with the ship and one to help with the landing. And they've got both of them turned on. And the computer, which is not as powerful as the cell phone you have in your pocket right now, got overloaded and couldn't handle that and starts uh, throwing off alarms making everyone think everything's going wrong. And then they have continuous radio problems where they can't be in direct radio contact between mission control and the the astronauts. It's just uh, unbelievable, unbelievable Mm. that it worked out. We should, uh, you mentioned at some point that the checklist for (laughs) right before takeoff, I forget just how many (laughs) items were on that that it's 30,000 pages. Right. Yeah. That tells us just how complex an undertaking this is. I wanted to mention just briefly that I remember watching a, a, a PBS documentary about the, the first time we actually went to the moon, the, er, the earlier Apollo flight that in which we orbited the, er, uh, orbited the moon. And uh, I remember s- at one point seeing TV footage of, of an astronaut's living room, the mother or the wife watching, and you just see this, antiquated furniture, I mean, it looks antiquated now, and this antiquated television set with rabbit ears on top, and you think, that's the world that managed to send men to the moon. Yes, exactly. I mean, surprisingly so, that made all of this even more remarkably impressive to me. Yeah, no, when, when you look back at the actual engineering that they were doing, you actually can go see the, um, the, uh, the equipment at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and you can see how much of it was handmade, such as, for example, when they have huge piles of cables connecting various parts of the ship. Someone has gone through and tied all this cable together with twine with little square knots, you know. Mm. And, and then I heard a term of engineering called LOL, which doesn't mean laugh out loud. It means little old lady. They had women with glue pots assembling the spacesuits. And then others were weaving the memory chips with wire to create the magnets for the memory for the computer. It's just unbelievable. Mm, An extraordinary accomplishment. And uh, we appreciate it all the more as we read your book called Rocket Men, which is published by Viking. Craig Nelson, I congratulate you on a wonderful, wonderful book. What a great way to celebrate this exciting anniversary. Thank you so much. Thank you so kindly. And we continue our special anniversary tribute to Apollo 11 by speaking with Andrew Chaikin. This is my second opportunity to speak with Andrew Chaikin. We spoke on one other occasion about a previous book which he has written about spaceflight. His newest book is uh, an absolutely perfect way to celebrate this remarkable occasion. It's called Voices from the Moon. Apollo astronauts describe their lunar experiences. And in the pages of this beautiful book, we have not only the words of the men who have gone to the moon, 
nearly all of them, but also breathtakingly beautiful visual images as well, which of course we can only talk about today, but uh, we will do our very best to convey to you just how spectacular this book is in every single respect. It's published by Viking. Again, it's called Voices from the Moon. Apollo astronauts describe their lunar experiences. And Andrew Chaikin, I am profoundly pleased and honored to welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you so much. And I, I do want to mention that my co-author on Voices from the Moon is also my wife, Victoria Cole. One of the things you mention in the foreword of the book is that the two of you actually put together this book visually. I guess we call it the layouts of the pages. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about that, about why it was important to you to, in a sense, take hold of this project and to some of those details which uh, might uh, escape the rest of us? Well, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, it really was a form of storytelling to combine these beautiful new scans of the mission photographs with the quotes from my conversations with the astronauts. And by the way, these quotes have never been published before. I've never uh, let the astronauts speak for themselves from my conversations with them. I wrote a man on the moon, and I did, you know, eight years of, of research and interviews with the guys who went to the moon. But uh, this is the first time that I'm actually quoting them directly. And we just felt, I felt very strongly, and so did Vicki, that, you know, we wanted it to be perfect. We wanted to pick exactly the right pictures and crop them exactly the right way to go with the quotes that would convey the experience. And we were very, worked very hard together on picking out the, the quotes that would tell that experience and um, combining them on the page just the right way to give a total kind of immersive experience to the reader. And you have really achieved that, I must say. And one of the things I appreciate about the visuals is that some of them are of <laughs> surpassing clarity. Uh, I mean, some of those images from the moon, it's just remarkable. And yet some of the images also, uh, those particularly captured in flight, will have, of course, what we understandably kind of blurry, sometimes sort of faint images. And those as well are so compelling. They really help sort of transport us there and make us part of this experience. Well, you know, it's funny. The, the new scans that have been coming out from NASA in the last several years, those were actually the inspiration for the book. That was the thing that made me realize that, that we could experience Apollo in a whole new way. Uh, through those new scans that you can zoom in on and see details that you never saw before. And it just seemed to make sense to me to combine those images with the words of the astronauts that I've had in my archives all these years and, uh, you know, that, that are so amazing in their intimacy in conveying that experience of being the first humans to leave the Earth and visit another world. I wish we had more time to talk about this next matter. I really feel like we, we do need to talk at least a little bit about your own connection to this whole story. You call yourself at one point a child of the space age and someone who really harbored fervent hopes of someday being an astronaut yourself. Can you just talk for a moment uh, about that and about... Uh, uh, 
how powerfully connected you you have been to this whole matter of of space exploration. Well, I'm I'm like a lot of kids that grew up in the '60s. I was completely captivated by the space program at an early age. I had fallen in love with astronomy when I was five years old, and in particular with the notion of going to other planets. And then, how lucky could I be to grow up at a time when space exploration was just beginning, when humans were going into space for the first time, walking in space for the first time. You know, you'd get the new issue of Life magazine, and there would be these incredible pictures from the latest space mission. And then when Apollo happened, I was a teenager. Um, I actually got to meet several of the astronauts by chance on a trip to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. We were staying at the same motel in uh, Cocoa Beach where they all stayed when they were training. And, uh, and I met uh, about six astronauts that day. And so, you know, I was just a complete space nut, the way other kids were into sports. I didn't know the first thing about baseball, but, boy, I knew everything there was to know about the astronauts. And um, I think I just always had, part of my brain was always, was always looking at things with a historian's eye. You know, I just always saved the newspapers that, that we got. I always um, remembered the feeling of the time and uh, even the little things like the uh, the commercials that the networks would run before the coverage of a flight and the little uh, logos that they did with the graphics and animation before the uh, mission coverage it was it was a whole cultural event and I guess the cultural part of it the the shared experience that we all had that's one of the things I missed the most. Mm. You, of course, at some point put away the notion of being a, a space explorer yourself in favor of becoming, of course, one of the finest space journalists that, that we have before us. I have to say, in, in, in much of the reading that I've done about these space missions, one of the things that fills me with a little bit of dismay is how, in, in, in some respects at least, so many of the journalists covering uh, the events of, of, of the 60s and early 70s. It just seems like I, I often am cringing at the kind of questions they were posing and, and what seemed to be their utter bewilderment and, and lack of full <laughs> grasp of, of what, in fact, was going on or what mattered most about what was going on. And I suspect those are mistakes I would myself would have made if I'd been a journalist at that point in time. Well, well sure, because, I mean... You, you know, you look back at that time and you have to realize that this is a completely new experience for all of us, uh, including the journalists. They had to kind of wrap their brains around this new enterprise called space exploration. I remember very vividly the um, ways that they tried to show how you do a space rendezvous uh, with model trains on tracks, and they would have one train that was supposed to be the command module and one that was supposed to be the lunar module, and they'd have it in the studio. And, you know, it was all very homegrown compared to today, of course. But we were learning as we went along how to even talk about the subject of space exploration, how to process it in our own mind, how to put that experience into some kind of framework that we could talk about. And so I think that's why you see, you know, as you look at the old that it does seem either naive or, as you say, bewildered, because we really were confronting something that humans had never 
Mm -hmm. We are speaking with Andrew Chaikin. We're talking about his newest book. It is called Voices from the Moon, Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experience. Uh, this, the, the, the quotes from these astronauts are culled from interviews which you first began conducting in June 1985 with Apollo 12's Pete Conrad, your That's final right. interview August 1992 with Apollo 16's Ken Mattingly. You ultimately did speak with, uh, is it 23 of the 24 Apollo astronauts who went to the moon? One had died before you had the chance to sit down with him. Uh, That's right. That was Apollo 13's Jack Swagger. He was the only one I didn't talk to. One of the things that was uh, an, an interesting complication and challenge for you is the fact that, in a sense, you were coming to these interviews with your own sense of wonderment and awe. And typically, these astronauts were coming to these interviews with a whole different perspective. And you say that uh, on many occasions, you met a very <laughs> persistent sort of resistance from them when you would ask certain kinds of questions. Talk a moment about that really interesting rub between you and the astronauts you would speak with. Sure. I, I, I think I was like a lot of people. I think, you know, I tried to imagine what I would feel if I got the chance to go to the moon, and I decided that it would blow every fuse in my head for a while, you know, that it would just be this that, I called it, and, and it, would, it would be transformative on some level. And when I talked to the astronauts, I had to come to grips with the fact that these were professionals. These were people who were doing a job, and it was a job they loved, and they were absolutely overjoyed and thrilled to be able to carry out what was for any pilot the ultimate test flight and to be able to do that in the context of the cold war which was a national this was a national mission the nation's prestige was very much at stake um, they knew they were doing it with the whole world watching over their shoulder um, but you know they they were up to the, the challenge and that's how they saw it they didn't see it as a chance to get their minds blown you know they in fact, Pete Conrad uh, said that the day he learned he was going to be an astronaut in 1962, he was driving home and he was saying to himself that if he got the chance to go to the moon, that it wasn't going to change him. And he was very proud when I interviewed him, very proud to say that indeed it had not changed him. Now, so Pete's at one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum was a guy like Jim Irwin. Uh, Apollo 15, uh, one of the two moonwalkers on Apollo 15, he came back from the moon and said that he had felt the presence of God on the moon and that he had had a profound spiritual experience and um, that uh, and he spent the rest of his life uh, as a Baptist minister. The guy on the mission right before him, Apollo 14, Ed Mitchell, who walked on the moon with Alan Shepard, he had a, a, a shift in consciousness on the way home from the moon, as he describes it. He had a sense of the Earth, uh, looking at the Earth on the way home from the moon. He had a sense of the universe as an intelligent, evolving entity, a uh, completely different way of experiencing the reality of the universe. And so he spent his post-NASA years, uh, his life since then, in, in a scientific pursuit to understand the nature of consciousness and psychic phenomena. 
Now, those are the two extremes of the spectrum. Everybody, most of the other guys are sort of in the middle. They, they look upon their moon flights as a pro profound uh, feeling of satisfaction at having risen to the top of their profession and done something that was so important in human history and, and so important in the life of the nation in the midst of the Cold War. They do talk about a, a change in their perspective uh, as a result of seeing the Earth shrink to the size of their outstretched thumb. I mean, my God, that's, that's got to change your perspective at least a little. Um, although I will say... <laughs> You know, there were times when even that was tough to get out of them. I remember with Ron Evans, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 17, kind of chasing him and saying, Ron, I mean, you know, what about the, the, the – I was trying to get some sense of awe out of him. And, he, and I said, well, what about seeing the Earth shrink to the size of your thumb? And he paused for a second, and he said, well, but it was supposed to get small. <laughs> and I think – you have to understand that this experience did not happen to somebody who was just plucked off the street and, and put in a spacesuit and fired off to the moon. These were people who had been working and training for years and years to get there. And so, um, you know, it, it, it also understand that these men were part of a generation. They grew up in the 1930s, most of them, when... Uh, you know, that you didn't exactly spend a lot of time plumbing the depths of your own feelings. Um, right. It's more important what you did in life than how you felt about it. And, of course, they were all, as you say in the introduction, children during the early days of, of aviation. And right. you say at one point, they were just the right age at just the right moment in history to become the first humans to leave the Earth and journey into deep space. Yeah, and I mean, think about the fact that the Wright brothers flew the first powered flight in 1903, and 66 years later, you had Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon. Now, that is a pace of progress in exploration, in physical exploration, that we have not seen before or since. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the reasons why Apollo is so special, because not only was it a unique moment in in history, but it was the crest of the wave that uh, really peaked with Apollo, and we really have not seen advances since then that have changed our lives, changed our view as much as Apollo. The advances since then have been in information technology, which has certainly transformed the world. But in terms of actually physically going places, um, you know, we can't even get back to where we were in 1972, let alone go to Mars. Hmm. I mean, we haven't been able to do that yet, and I'm, I have faith that we will, but I just don't know when. We're speaking with Andrew Chaikin. We are talking about his most recent book, a, a beautiful masterpiece called Voices from the Moon, Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experiences. We should explain to our listeners, I think, that the book is laid out in such a way that... Um, you almost sort of chronologically take us through uh, each of these flights uh, as we hear from various astronauts. I mean, for instance, the experience of, of preparation, the experience of liftoff of that journey to the moon uh, for those right. Apollo so flights that, that landed and so on, taking right. us so through, the, through the life of a mission. Wanna, we didn't want to do Apollo 10 followed by Apollo 11 followed by Apollo 12. We wanted it to be each experience experience 
common to all the flights. Uh, that that so that each you start out chronologically in terms of the experience of going to the moon. Hmm. One of my favorite quotes comes from Alan Bean, and he is what Apollo twelve. Yes, exactly. Um, he was on the moon with Pete Conrad. In fact, in uh, early in the book. There's this quote from him. We'd looked at the moon at night and talk about it, but it still seemed pretty abstract. It's funny how you get. When you're planning on going to the moon every day, it seems a little bit in the future and unreal because you've been saying you're going to the moon for weeks and weeks and months and months. And you flew to the moon in the simulator yesterday and the day before. In fact, when you go down to the launch pad, until about 15 minutes prior to launch, you know, you're saying, well, maybe we'll go, maybe we won't. Here you are, it's launch morning, you've got your suit on, you're in there, but you know, you've done this so much that uh, it's not unlike all these other practice times. And it's only about, for me anyhow, 15 minutes prior to the real launch that I began to really change from doing the job to, we're really going. (laughs) I feel like that's a very human moment he shares with us. (laughs) You know, it really is, and I love just even hearing you read it. The, the reality of his speech patterns, the unscripted way in which that comes across that really bridges the gap between you and the experience that they had. Absolutely. That's, that's really the most precious thing that I got to do was to sit down and have conversations like that mm. and to be able to now you know, bring that across directly through the words of the astronauts is I just feel very, very proud of being able to do that and and glad that I could do it. Absolutely. I appreciate the fact that you clearly were asking these astronauts about a lot of wonderful details. And, and someone not so immersed in all of this might not have even thought to ask what it's like when you're sitting in that Saturn rocket before it's taking off. I mean, or just as it's about to. Yeah. You quote right. Jim Lovell uh, here saying, it's a little different sitting in the rocket rather than watching it from the ground and hearing the announcer, you know, dramatically talk about the countdown and what's going on inside the rocket sitting there waiting for the countdown is a lot different because you don't get that momentous buildup, that anxiety buildup. You're sitting there and you do certain things. And the launch is a little bit different, too, because on the ground you get that vibration in your stomach, whereas in the spacecraft itself, it's a big rumble. You can hear those valves open up and all that fuel drop down those manifold valves. You know, the pipes are big. You know, you're burning 15 tons per second. And so you really go to town and you can hear that. And it's a big rumbling noise and off you go. (laughs) It's it's not exactly poetry there, but he he is telling us what it felt like and sounded like. And we're so privileged to to have that. uh, Yeah, you know... The words themselves may not sound like poetry, but, boy, the whole undertaking is poetry as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely. Such a magnificent display of human ingenuity and and passion and drive. Of course. Jim Lovell, by the way, you, uh, I think, have another memorable quote of him, and this is also that part that we tend not to think enough about, and that's just the traveling away from the planet Earth and towards the moon. He says, In spaceflight, when we orbited the Earth... We thought in terms of continents. We're over the U.S. Now we're over a body of water. We're over Africa now. We're over Australia now. In the lunar flight, we thought in terms of bodies. The moon's here. The sun's there. The earth is there. I mean, just thinking about the earth as a planet. Isn't that just wonderful? It's such a leap in 
it's one of those powers of ten leaps that you get in in perspective, uh, and and it really gets across the fact that you know I'm nothing against the shuttle astronauts and the station astronauts who risked their lives to go up there to low Earth orbit, but I'll tell you, it's a as Gene Cernan said, it's a different space program when you actually leave low Earth orbit and you begin to see the Earth as a planet. Right, and it of course, and it gets smaller and smaller. And you you quote astronaut Stu Rusa as saying that where he really started to realize their distance from the Earth is not even so much the visual as when there would be this delay when you'd call yeah. hello Houston and there would be. Mm, Go ahead, 14. And that was the first big realization that, hey, we're starting to get out there. <laughs> I know. The radio signals, the fact that it took the radio waves uh, a noticeable moment to travel between the, the moon and the Earth and then back again. And, you know, the moon is just next door. And, and people don't realize that. The moon is only a quarter of a million miles away. We're talking about going to Mars? That's, that's 35 million miles away at its closest. Sometimes it'll be on the other side of the sun from us, and it's 200 million miles away. So you've got a situation when you send people to Mars where the radio travel time is going to be 10, 15, sometimes even 20 minutes. And that is really going to be a sense of isolation because you can't even have a real-time conversation with anybody except the people who are on Mars with you. Hmm. And I think that that really does get home, that bring home the fact that when we talk about going to Mars, we're really talking about cutting the cord with Earth in a way that we haven't done before. Right. Of course, for so many viewers, the emotional moment was when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. But he himself says that the emotional high point for him, for that Apollo 11 flight, was when they first landed on the moon. And of course, what your astronauts help us understand is that was really the precarious moment. Dave yes, Scott is quoted as saying, landing the lunar module was the kind of thing where you knew you had only one chance, not two chances, one chance. Everything has to go right. Right. That was Dave Scott who made the landing on Apollo 15. And, you know, it really was, uh, just like he says, it was the most complex part of the flight. It was the time when the most things could go wrong. If you screwed it up, you could either blow the mission or you could kill yourself. And so that was one of the reasons they had a trainer when they were still on Earth. We've got some great quotes about that experience. It was called the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle. And it was uh, set up so that you could practice moon landings on the Earth. With a, uh, you had a, a rocket engine, but you also had a jet engine to take out five-sixths of the weight so that when you use the rocket, it would feel like you were flying in lunar gravity. And that thing was extremely unforgiving. If you, if you uh, tipped more than a certain number of degrees from side to side, you would just fall right out of the sky. So the, the mental, Alan Shepard talks about the mental toughness of flying that thing and how it prepared you for the real landing. Right. And, of course, it is Alan Shepard, the very first man up in space, who eventually is able to return to the space program. First American. Anyway. Right. Yes, right. First American in space who eventually can return to space and lands on the moon and actually cries on the surface of the moon, something he never, ever dreamt would be possible. And yet, of course, to be there for him and these others were, was such a, a stunning experience. Andrew Chaikin's book, Voices of the Moon, 
Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experiences, was published in 2009 for the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11. I'm Gregory Berg.